The psalmist began the 122nd Psalm with these unforgettable words. I was glad when they said up to me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. As we've gathered together tonight, we each can also understand and experience that gladness by knowing the great blessing and privilege we have of coming together in the name of the Lord to recognize how truly good and great it is, the fellowship we enjoy, and plus the turning of our attention to those most eternally significant things as we look forward to not only singing and praising Him in song, surrounding of His table and prayer, but also a study of part of His holy and divine will. As you probably noticed in the reading a moment ago, taken from the first chapter of that first of the major prophets of the Old Testament, namely Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, you might have noted that one of the words used in that passage, one of the thoughts expressed therein, come and let us reason together, saith the Lord. As we think about then, is it reasonable to have faith? That's the subject that I have given to the lesson tonight. Is it reasonable to have faith? May I submit to you, that through the introductory section tonight, let us phrase and consider carefully what is meant by the question, and then over the major section of the, of the lesson tonight to look at what the Bible has to say in answer to it. So indeed, first of all, is it reasonable to have faith? Let us first of all place that on the footing, on the foundation, whereby we can understand the character and importance of the question. We are very well aware that there is an extremely potent enemy to all that is of Christ. This enemy is often identified, referenced in the Holy Word. He is, of course, known by many special names, Satan, the devil, the dragon, as he's called in Revelation. And isn't it amazing that he is presented as that singular arch enemy of God? He had as his desire to cause the great Job to fall. He even tempted our Savior in a great and majestic fashion, but he was defeated. We should understand he also has you and me in, in his sights. As Christians, he takes no greater pleasure than to bring difficulty and havoc upon the church, the difficulties that may arise in my life or yours, temptations that we face. Indeed, he's a strong and mighty opponent. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he is there and described as a roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He is not of idle interest toward Christians, you or me or anyone else as Christians. He has as his desire to bring us to an eternal hell where he will be. He already knows from Second Peter 2, his final disposition is that of being everlastingly lost, separated from the God whom he chose to in fact oppose. He has no greater desire than to take as many with him to eternal perdition. And thus, his opposition to the church is strong and mighty. In fact, that's one of the elements that we're going to consider so interestingly in the lesson tonight. What are some of the tactics that he uses to bring doubts and questions into the minds of Christians? After all, those in the world are already his followers. He need not work so hard to, in fact, labor in their behalf. But it's those who are members of the Lord's body. It's those who are already washed Christians. Those are the ones he must work a little bit more zealously toward. And thus, what are some of his ploys? his tactics, his means and his ways whereby he may cause you and me to begin to doubt, to begin to question, perhaps ultimately to fall from our faith. 
May I submit to you that one of his tactics is none other than the convincing of men and women. The convincing of them that it is not reasonable to believe. That it is not reasonable to have faith. As you might well imagine, some of the ways that he proceeds to do that, the commonest thereof, perhaps worthy of our fuller discussion. Let me lift a few of the ways then, and consider if you're not even aware of these as well as am I. After all, if Satan can take a circumstance, a means of teaching, a specified dogma or doctrine, and by it wage it in opposition to the Bible and thus there claim it's not reasonable to believe, everyone who is intellectual doesn't believe that. Everyone who is knowledgeable or learned or educated doesn't believe that. All of those who in fact aren't given to superstitions and to those medieval concepts, they just don't believe that anymore. In fact, you and I often see that sometimes the very gospel in which you and I believe, many of the most basic elements of our faith are often by some cataloged in that very same way. In fact, consider just a few examples. I've listed in a very basic way the arguments of science. You and I understand that those who are the researchers and the learned scientists, be it in various fields, quite often they, with powerful and honorable respect, and furthermore with great attention and eloquent speech, will stand and say, we've proven that the Bible has mistakes in it. We've proven that it has errors and discrepancies. And we've proven that there is no God. You and I, as those who may be somewhat more mature in the faith, know better than any such. But what about others who are just weak in the faith? Or others who are just beginning to mature? Could seeds of doubt, could seeds of uncertainty be planted in their mind, which ultimately may germinate in full-fledged apostasy from the truth? So many scientists, you see, and our magazines are full of it. Perhaps you or I invite the National Geographic to come in our home every month. We look at the pictures and we are aware of some of the articles. Perhaps even as you visit a doctor's office or a dentist's office, you may see that National Geographic lying there. If you ever pick it up and look inside, you may well see comments like this. It hadn't been very many years ago someone said that anybody who does not believe in organic evolution is either ignorant, stupid, or both. Doesn't that describe you or me then? Those who apparently have not succumbed to the teaching of evolution and accepted it and embraced it in all of its supposed factualness, you and I are called basically those that are uneducated. We're called superstitious. We're called by various names that belittle our faith. Is it reasonable to have faith? Well, what about the philosophers and others who take a study of the character of man and who in that study say that they've proven that the gospel system can't be right? Well, again, to that young person or that individual who isn't mature in the faith, he or she may take that and say, is there something to that? Maybe I've been deceived all this time. Maybe there really are mistakes in this. As we consider some of those things, we can perhaps appreciate that the insulting attacks and the various statements that are made have at its ultimate fundamental character the intent on the part of Satan to in fact draw people away from the truth of the gospel. And might we so say that he has been very successful. He has in fact been extremely successful at that. And thus you and I might appreciate, is it reasonable to have faith? 
Is it true that to have faith, biblical, gospel faith, is opposed to reason? Is the Bible opposed to research and scientific investigation? Is it opposed to study and analysis and logic and reasoning conclusion? For if it is, those who have made that claim again at the instigation of Satan have been right. But if that's not true, we understand Satan's ploy. Let's spend the next little while tonight then asking, is it reasonable to have faith? Does God in fact desire that we employ our faculties of reason and logic and understanding to come to a deeper appreciation of him, not to draw us away from him? Well, in fact, find that's going to be the answer. He has given us those mental powers and those reasonable faculties, and the ultimate goal of them, the ultimate usage of them, ought to draw us closer to the, to the God of heaven, not to drive us from him. Let us notice in the Bible how reason is referred to, how it's referenced, and how it's spoken of. Let's begin our journey by looking in particular at the various facts of the case, as I have chosen to call it. I'd ask that you consider the following with me. It is truly an interesting and intriguing fact to realize that when God made you and me, when he made the human family, when he created Adam and Eve, as we've noted in our Bible study class on Sunday morning, they were made in God's likeness and in his image, Genesis 5 verse 1, Genesis 1, 26 and 7. And that being said, man was made a very special creature indeed, far above any animal, and with that being said, man was given the capability of reason and logic and analysis and investigation. He was given the capability of taking evidence and from that drawing a conclusion. Isn't it amazing when one considers that fact? The Bible openly portrays that very fact to us. I've listed Daniel chapter 4 as a very interesting Bible reference. You remember the scene very well. There was a mighty king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. As he ruled and reigned over Babylon, he was the highest authority ruling over the most powerful nation on earth. However, isn't it interesting that in Daniel chapters 3 and 4, we learn something very amazing about him. That in his power and in his authority, he became prideful and arrogant. So much so that God gave a dream to him. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great tree that which in fact had filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar said it was cut down. For a decree from the Almighty was sent and those were told to hew down that tree, but the stump was left. Later in that chapter, we learn exactly what that dream meant. And in fact, beginning near the close of it in verses 29 and following, that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In his mighty greatness, where he thought he was untouchable, the God of heaven brought him low due to his arrogance and pride. And we each remember what happened. He lived like a beast of the field for some number of years. But isn't it amazing that in verses 34 and 36, while living that way, he said, My understanding was not with me. And it was when he was given his human heart back that his understanding returned. What did he not have as an animal? Understanding. Two verses later in verse 36, he said, When my reason returned to me. What did he not have as an animal? Reason. He thus had neither understanding nor reason, whereas you and I do. God fashioned us that way. 
He doesn't desire that we act irrationally. He doesn't desire that we deduct, deduce things that the evidence does not warrant. He desires that we look at that evidence and factually address what does it suppose and what does it teach. As we look at the Word of God, we often, in fact, make use of that very idea. But as we've already seen then in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he no longer had that power when he was not a human. Can we not then see that God made man in such a way that he could reason, he could deduce, and he could analyze, and he could draw conclusions? It is not God's desire that we do not use those to his glory. It is not his desire that we set aside the thought capabilities we have. Rather, he wants us to use them in full responsibility and in full pursuit of his way. Perhaps we could state that yet another way. That reason and that capability we have mentally, as we've noted, when we consider the evidence, it should lead us to God and to the Savior and to the body, namely the church, not away from any of them. Throughout the centuries, many very interesting and learned men who, in using their mental faculties, have in fact found the truth to be exactly as God said it was. Those who then tell us that faith is opposed to reason are deceiving us or attempting to do so. They are attempting, in fact, to set the thoughts and indictments of man above the proclamations of heaven. And if they can put the seeds of doubt in our mind, they have won a somewhat significant battle. For if one seed of doubt is planted, that may well grow into many others, and thus we will, in fact, no longer have any interest in those things of God, in the truth of his word. I've listed some other examples near the bottom of the screen that I would ask you to consider with me. Notice in these texts how in fact that human reasoning was an important part of what God commanded. In Job, beginning in chapter 38, we might well recall that by that point Job had been in a very difficult circumstance. We remember the calamities that he faced in chapters 1 and 2 where he lost his children and his possessions and his animals. And we remember how devastating that was to him. And in fact, even so-called friends came. And when they came, their simple message was, Job, you have sinned, and furthermore, it's been a great sin for it to have caused all of this that you have now experienced. Throughout the course of that book, Job, on the other hand, says, I have not, in the openness and honesty of my heart, I have served the Lord. He knew that if he had sinned, it was not intentional. He knew that if he was not right with his heavenly Father, all he needed was for God to point that out gently and honestly and that he would make that right. In fact, Job's main desire was simply to dialogue with the God of heaven, just to have a face-to-face -face conversation and have God explain why all this had happened. Inasmuch, though, as Job had an interesting desire to question God, Finally, God speaks for the first time in that book in chapter 38. And in that chapter, we will remember what God had to say. Job, gird up now thy loins like a man and answer thy these questions. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you can tell me, answer. Job, where were you when I parted the lake? Explain it to me. Job, where were you when I made the paths of the sea or placed the foundations of the earth? In machine gun fashion, God asked Job dozens of questions and Job couldn't answer any of them. Not a one of them could he answer. Though Job was a reasonable man, and though he was a learned man, 
though he was a great patriarch in the land of Uz, the text tells us. His reasoning capabilities, God begged him to use them and answer the questions, but Job couldn't. Finally, as the book closes in chapter 42, God again responds by noting that it was the friends who were wrong all along. Job was the one that was right. It is an interesting thing to remember, though, that there are other instances in the Scriptures, the testimony of this wonderful world in which we live. Did it happen by accident? Did it come about as simply some experiment gone wrong somewhere? In Romans 1, verse 20, as Paul wrote to the brethren in Rome, he said, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God, you see, has left his fingerprints all over this solar system, all over this universe, and all over planet Earth. All we must do is look at it and ask what better explanation is there than the fact God made it. He fashioned it. He, in fact, planted within it the power that he gave it. Does it make sense that things from explosions turn into order? Does it make sense that a bomb can explode and in the aftermath of it a building is constructed? It doesn't. Science may, in its attempt to explain away the existence and proof of God, try to tell us that it could have happened some other way, but they haven't yet proven that. Nor shall they ever prove it. You see, the Bible is the truth all along and tells us time and time again that our God spoke this thing into existence and in its power and its wonder it has been maintained ever since. It is a fascinating consideration to notice that in Psalm 14.1, as well as Psalm 53.1, the text says, The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Some may look upon that as an open insult, but really it isn't. That word fool just means those who will not accept the evidence and who will not logically pursue that evidence to its natural end. The Bible calls those who so act fools. They have evidence, but they will not use it to reason properly. And thus, we can appreciate the fact that God expects us to use the powers he's given us, and it should never take us away from him. But in fact, it should increase our faith, improve our confidence and assurance that all the Bible says is actually correct. All throughout the scriptures, we in fact encounter many instances where reason was a part of what God desired and often what he spoke of. I have several examples listed on this next screen. I would ask that you consider them somewhat briefly with me. We've already read about one of them in Isaiah 1, verse number 18. That text that was read in our hearing a moment ago, return with me to the scene. This was a scene regarding spiritual matters. Just a moment ago, we discussed the fact that even physical things testify to God's greatness and in fact should be a powerful remark in our mind to His greatness, His loving goodness as well. But let us turn our attention to spiritual matters. Again, there are those who call you and I superstitious. We're fundamentalists, we're right-wing fundamentalists who in fact are just mere superstitious people. That's how some consider you and me. They do not think it's reasonable to have faith. However, I believe by looking at the Word of God, we may find a different answer to that question. Isaiah, again speaking for God, said, Come now, let us reason together. 
That word means to dispute, to consider, to thoroughly weigh the evidence and reach a proper conclusion. With regard to ancient Israel, the verses that precede that one indicate that Israel had lapsed into falseness with regard to worship. In fact, when they came together, God said it really wasn't such a good thing. Though they offered sacrifices, they merely went through the motions. Their heart wasn't in it. They were not doing it out of a love for the Lord. And thus, in verse 18, God says, Let's reason now about this. Let's enter into discussion and let me share with you the truth of the matter. God wasn't attempting to merely argue against them for no other apparent reason. He wanted to present the facts of the case and have them understand the error in their way. God today desires to reason with you and me. He doesn't want us to lay aside our capabilities of reason as we enter that door back there. He wants us to come in with our full capable faculties of logic and reason and use them to increase our faith and stronger point us toward the character of the God of heaven. In Micah 6 verses 1 and 2, we have there another interesting court case. Here again, the people of Israel by that time in their history had again lapsed far away religiously from what God would have them be. They behaved one way on the day of worship, but then through the week they acted differently. They weren't as genuine. They weren't as real as they should be. And thus God in these opening verses of Micah 6 painted what we often might call a court scene. He said, I have a controversy with you. He, in fact, even pointed out that the mountains, if they could speak, could clearly see the error in your way. It's as though God was going to be the prosecuting attorney. He was going to set the facts of the case before them and have the evidence openly laid bare. You see, the evidence is clearly in God's favor. It always has been and always will be. It is reasonable to have faith. Never should we think, though men may tell us otherwise, though articles may present the opposite, though others may try to convince us that it simply doesn't make sense to have faith, they are wrong. For you and I know there's a higher calling to this. Not only physically, but spiritually, there are things science can never explain. Why can't scientists sometimes see that? Why can't philosophers understand that? What scientist can explain the origin of the soul? What scientist can explain the origin of human cognition and thought? That couldn't have happened by accident. If it could, why can't animals do it? And yet the fact is no scientist attempts to explain consciousness or self-awareness because they can't. God can. He's already given us the explanation. He has told us it's because we're made in His image and that power and that capability gives us that opportunity and the marvelous wonders that it makes available. Consider religiously some other examples of reasoning as found in the Bible. In Matthew 11, we remember on this occasion that Jesus was asked a question. In fact, John the Baptist had sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, Art thou the one that should come, or do we seek for another? Seems a straightforward question, but have you often wondered why Jesus didn't say yes or no? You and I know the answer to the question. Jesus was the one that was to come. Why didn't he just tell John, yes, I'm the one? But rather Jesus said, John, or to those disciples, you go back and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. And thus in the next verse he said, 
The blind can now see. The lame can now walk. The deaf can now hear. The dead are raised back to life. The poor have the gospel preached to them. You go back and tell John that. Notice thus the implicit statement made. That evidence was supposed to be enough for John to know. That evidence was supposed to be enough for John to deduce that Christ was the one coming. That means John was supposed to conclude something. He was supposed to reason about the character of what the answer should obviously be. But consider another example where reason is found in the Holy Word of God. In John 4, beginning in verse 39, continuing through verse 42, on that occasion, Jesus had entered into a conversation with a woman at the well there in Sychar. During that conversation, Jesus pointed out many elements of truth to her, but on one occasion, at one point in that story, she ran back into town and told them, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. She's so excited. She knew that there was something special about this Jesus. She went telling him he was the Messiah. And thus, when Jesus preached and when he spoke in conversation to the others, in those verses we just noted, verses 39 to 42, these said, we believe that he was the Messiah, not because of what you said, speaking to that lady, but because of what we heard him say. What Jesus said convinced them. They had reasoned and reached a conclusion based on what he taught that he was the Christ. Isn't it interesting how today this can still lead to that same conclusion when we approach it honestly and openly and let our reason guide us to the character of what God has revealed? Reason is not opposed to faith. Reason sustains it, encourages it, and even amplifies it when we let it work freely and openly and without bias. We can never allow human thought to replace God's Word, but our powers of reason are always in accord with it when we let the Scriptures be our guide, when we let it direct our thoughts and in our ultimate way of thinking. The Christian life, you see, is not merely a blind leap of faith. There are some who have so described it, but that's not an entirely fair description. For after all, God has presented evidence, mounds and mounds of evidence. He expects us to respond to that evidence and to do so in a matter of course of faith. But that directly means that all the times that Paul discussed faith and all the times that he made discussions about it, he helped us appreciate that it truly is not merely a blind leap. God doesn't ask us just to leap into this with no evidence to prompt that decision. We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. And what's more, consider some of these other statements with me. In Acts 24, verse 25, not too far from the close of the book of Acts, we remember that by that point Paul was in custody. And as he stood before a mighty individual named Felix, Paul gave an account of his position, an accounting of that which brought him to that place. But isn't it also terribly fascinating in Acts 24 how that it says, Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. And the response, Felix trembled. Felix trembled. Felix trembled. What Paul said was so convicting, it prompted his reason to the point where he trembled. What Paul said was not merely idle superstition. Here was a learned man, Felix, who as he thought about what Paul said, 
as he pondered the nature of it, it led him to tremble. It led him to be somewhat frightened. It led him to be cautious and concerned. It led him to tremble. We notice then that Paul, in his capability, used the nature of the truth of God's Word and it prompted the reason of Felix. God's Word should appeal to our reason. We understand that as sinners we have violated. We are thus not clean. How does that become clean? How do we do away with that sin? Can science offer any answer? Can philosophy offer any answer? No. In some ways it's even told by those in those circles that there's no such thing as sin. But we know better than that. There's a nature and an immortal spirit that belongs to me and that belongs to you that convicts us. And the Holy Spirit is behind that. We notice that Felix trembled. There was truth in what Paul said and it touched the character of his being and he trembled. But consider another example. In addition to this one, in the second to the last book in the Bible, Jude, one chapter book, verse 3, that interesting writer named Jude made this interesting remark. He said, When I wrote unto you of the common salvation, I wrote that you should contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. Might we place a degree of emphasis on that word contend? What does that mean? To contend earnestly for the faith. That word contend means as follows in the Greek. It means to make a strenuous effort in behalf of. It means to struggle in behalf of. That word contend thus has within it a concept or idea of entering into reasoned discussion in defense of an element that one believes in. When you and I approach those who are unbelievers, as we contend for the faith, we appeal to their reason, we set forth the truth of God's word, and like Paul, we convict them by reasonable arguments and by reasonable propositions. We see then that again to contend earnestly for the faith involves the usage of our mental capabilities and that which we have the opportunity to utilize. But yet consider another in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, perhaps a text that has challenged all of us on many occasions. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear. And thus, as Peter gave orders or statements with regard to that point, he said, you must be ready. You should be ready to give an answer to all who would ask of you a reason for what you do and why you do it for the faith that's within you. To offer reason. Doesn't that directly mean that we don't do this without good reason? We don't do what we do by way of worship or the plan of salvation or the other teachings of the Bible. We don't follow this without reason. We have every good reason. And that reason should prompt in us the recognition of the responsibility that's ours to share that reason with those who ask of us. Why do you do things that way? We should be ready then to give them good reason and not just to say, because we've always done it that way. Do we have book, chapter, and verse? Do we have scriptural identification for why we do the things the way that we do? We should be able to give reasons, not excuses or not other thoughts or opinions, but reasons. And isn't that a challenge to each of us, but a duty nonetheless? As we thus see how yet again reason has entered into the notion of the Bible, 
I would ask that you consider with me these other two as well. In Acts 17, verse number 3, we remember on the second missionary journey, Paul had arrived at the city of Thessalonica. And as he came into that location, he entered into the synagogue as was often his course. And as he taught and as he preached, there were two interesting verbs used in Acts 17.3. He opened and he alleged. He opened and he alleged. What does that mean? To open and allege means that Paul entered into discussion. He entered into dialogue with those who were his adversaries. Paul did not then look upon a situation or in any way sidestep reason. He rather attempted to convince them by logical deduction the power of what he had preached. He opened and he alleged. Might we recognize, might we see then that there perhaps is one final one we can consider. Consider Philippians 1 verse 16. Maybe your mind raced to this one as one of the first texts as we mentioned the opening subject for tonight. To the Philippians, Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew that there would be many who would oppose his teaching, many who in fact would try to accuse him of things that were not so. All the while, Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. That very phrase in the Greek means as follows. The word is apologia. Now that doesn't mean apologize. That means apologetics. It means to defend the truth. It means to do so against the onslaughts of unbelievers. To do so against the claims of those who do not have faith. Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Paul would stand toe-to-toe with anyone and straightforwardly proclaim the truth of God's Word and in so doing, reason with them about the things that they had heretofore not seen, the character of where they had gone astray and amiss in their previous line of thinking. Time and again as Paul did that, he did not rely upon those things that would be merely human invention. He relied on the truth of God's Word. He never wanted the faith of men to stand in the ways of men. He told the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians 2. He wanted their faith to stand in the wisdom of God. You see, God desires that we have reason. He desires that we utilize it when we enter that door and study His Word. He doesn't expect us to cast it off. We should use it to openly draw us closer and nearer to His way. Faith is not opposed to reason, never has been, never will be. We understand that as God fashioned and made us, and this world and everything in it, all of it points to the grand maker. All of it points to the very one who made all of this. Thus, at the bottom, I have placed the statement with some degree of emphasis, it is reasonable to have faith. That answers our question, as we've seen many texts that have led us in that direction. May we summarize in our lesson in this way. As we've looked tonight, and I tried to address the question, is it reasonable to have faith? We have noted that there are some who say the answer is no. In fact, many learned, so-called educated and intellectual ones especially might tell us that. Sometimes our children are faced with those who ridicule and belittle them because our children do have faith. Even some of us as older sometimes face the reviling insults or comments of those who feel the same way. But we must ever realize that they made fun of our Lord. They made fun of Paul. They belittled him and as well as the other apostles. 
in the very last of those Beatitudes, made this statement. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You see, this world being under the control of Satan is a world that you see doesn't appreciate Christianity so much. It doesn't appreciate the truth of the gospel so much. But God, by way of the capabilities of that gospel and our reasoned approach to it, will lead us ultimately to a home in heaven. We must have faith and reason and use them in defense of the truth and give answers to those who ask us the questions of faith. Tonight, have you allowed yourself to respond in faith to what God has demanded? You and I are sinners. That sin will cause us to enter a devil's hell if we do not do something about it. You and I can't cleanse sin by ourselves. We do not have that power. Who or what can? Only Christ. Jesus, in fact, came to this earth. God loved you and me enough, and history records the fact he lived here. No one doubts that fact. Inasmuch as he walked this earth, he was crucified. He shed his blood, and that blood is the price that was paid to cleanse my sins and yours. Reason tells us then how significant that is. And reason should lead us to graciously and thankfully respond to God by obeying his way. If you've not been baptized into Christ, understand that that's where you reach his blood. You contact it there. When you rise from that watery grave, his blood will have washed your sins away. They are no more. Isn't that wonderful? You will never feel again as you do on that occasion. But once you've begun your walk in faith, it's not to say that you'll live seamlessly perfect. You'll trip up and stumble and fall, and you'll fall to temptation and sin. But never forget that there is a Savior who wants you come to come back. He wants in reason to plead for you to return, and that He has done. If we could help you tonight to do that, to come back to your first love, we would do that by prayer, just as was done for Simon in Acts 8. We pray on your behalf that God would forgive your sins and he would openly welcome you back upon your repentance and confession. Tonight, if we could be of any assistance to your public obedience to the gospel, realize that faith is not opposed to reason. It is reasonable to have faith. Use that tonight to respond in faith to the God who loves you. If we could help you do that, do that now while together we stand and sing.